welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 159. And as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now we've got a Q&A episode lined up for you today. So Jack, going to hit you up with this first question. It says, what are your thoughts on weighted vests? Would you ever consider using one during a prep? Yeah, interesting question. So I think it's important to start off with like what is a weighted vest and where did it come from in terms of using it for a dieting phase? Because some people, this might be quite new to them, uh, like the thought of wearing a weighted vest almost all the time to assist with a fat loss phase is quite potentially a foreign concept. I think we were both quite surprised uh, when we first heard about it. Mm, Yeah, but I feel like it's becoming a little bit more common, I guess, or at least people are experimenting with it during their preps. At least it seems that way in these past few years. Yeah, for sure. I think probably the most notable person, not the first person who did it, but the most notable would be Steve Hall from Revive Stronger. And he recently concluded his, or fairly recently concluded his comp prep season and he employed the weighted vest protocol Mm. throughout that. And I'm not too sure of the specifics, like exactly how much you're meant to put on and when, but essentially the, the gist of using a weighted vest is to kind of replace the amount of weight that you've lost Uh, using the weighted vest and the goal of that is to one i guess expend more energy throughout the day Mm. and which will allow you to keep your calories a little bit higher and i think there's also some incentive there to help retain muscle mass and potentially even going a bit deeper to a physiological level in terms of um, metabolism or hormone regulation as well. Yeah, because there is some literature in this space looking into how much weight is actually held down on our skeletal frame because we have to think about the musculoskeletal system. We have our skeleton, but we also have our muscle mass too. And believe it or not, they actually communicate with one another. But There is some literature looking into actually the osteocytes and the cells within our bones and how they actually detect how much weight is bearing on those bones. And interestingly, that actually might link into appetite and also body weight regulation and trying to stay around a healthy body weight. So if our bones detect a certain amount of weight bearing down on them, then they will either tell our brain, hey, I'm quite hungry, you need to feed me a little bit more because I'm feeling quite light over here. Or if they're feeling quite heavy or they're they're bearing a lot of weight, they might then regulate appetite the other way to say, hey, I'm actually not so hungry, so you don't need to feed me quite as much. So I guess in theory, if you were losing weight off your frame, primarily just from adipose tissue, we'd hope no muscle mass is being lost, but you were sneakily replacing that weight with a weighted vest, then perhaps you could try to trick the body into thinking that you are actually the same weight and potentially that could help with regulating your appetite. But once again, that's a theory that certainly hasn't been deeply looked into and comprehensively studied in the literature. And my personal take on that, Jack, would be, I think the body's a little bit smarter than that. And I think that it would catch up, particularly if you were undergoing a six month comp prep. 
I think the body's smart enough to recognize that, hey, I actually don't have a lot of energy reserves coming in anymore. I actually don't have much body fat on me. So despite you're putting a little bit of extra weight on my frame, I'm still gonna give you that feedback that please feed me, I'm pretty hungry. Because we know that hunger and appetite, it's so multifactorial. It's not just about the amount of weight that you have on you. Yeah, it's just like other elements of physiology like muscle gain, for example, there's more than one direct avenue for what contributes to muscle mm. gain. So we have, I guess, to put it broadly, like training and nutrition, but then we could dig deeper and say, okay, what about your sleep? What about your hormone status? Mm -hmm. What about your recovery, etc.? And then we could even break nutrition down into individual areas like protein and macro distribution, being in a calorie surplus, mm -hmm. etc. So I think it's also the same reasoning behind using like a weighted vest um, and expecting to see these miraculous results when it's just potentially one pathway towards trying to reduce appetite or preserve muscle mass. So really the only benefit, tangible benefit I would see from it is potentially uh, the increase in expenditure. Mm. And I honestly think the rest of it would mainly be downsides because mm -hmm. we got to look at what is the main thing that is going to preserve our muscle in a comp prep and that's going to be training. So wearing a weighted vest all the time, imagine the impact that's going to have on like those big movements where you have a lot of spinal loading as it is. And then if you well, if you lose 10 kilos in a comp prep and towards the end you're wearing 10 kilos on your back and it's pressing down on you, mm. that's going to, in my opinion, like impact the recovery of, of your back and your spine and also like the central nervous system fatigue as well when the fatigue is already incredibly high at that point in prep. And then you're expecting to be able to preserve your performance in the gym with that on, on top of it. Like that's probably the biggest decrement I can think of personally. Yeah, I totally agree because sure, you're replacing that total lost weight in absolute terms with just the vest, but you have to remember when we're losing weight, like it's coming off our entire body. So it should be somewhat evenly distributed. You know, you're losing weight off your feet and your calves and your lower extremities. You can't just put all of that weight bearing just basically on your back, your chest. I just imagine your traps would take a beating. Like I know if even if I drive in the car for longer than 45 minutes, my traps cramp up. So I can't imagine just having like 10 kilograms just weighing down on me for hours during the day. I think that though most people, if they do try to implement the weighted vest protocol, I think they do wear it mainly when they are just walking around or at home, they might take it off while they're actually training and that yeah of course they do hopefully but... they take it off in the shower too <laughs> yeah and while sleeping yeah I would hope. but yeah it's, i mean even leading up to the gym etc mm. um, what i'm quite interested in is more so like afterwards how you would feel wearing it for for a full comp prep and then suddenly not having to wear it all the time like that would be it would just be the biggest oh in the world <laughs> yes especially when you don't have any libido at that point <laughs> you just gotta please yourself man you just gotta resort to the weighted vest yeah <laughs> it's literally gotten to that point <laughs> now but i guess the question is would you consider wearing one in a prep because i isn't we have had this discussion somewhat before like would you consider it to try it out see what it's like i personally would yes i think 
our lifestyles are quite conducive to succeeding with a weighted vest, mm-hmm. like working a corporate job and going into the city on, on the train and then working amongst other people in an office setting. I can't really see that working too well with a weighted vest, but I mean, we work at home, etc. Mm-hmm. We walk to and from the gym. So I can see it working nicely. I would definitely like some more anecdotal evidence first mm-hmm. from other people and maybe even if there are any like invest uh, case studies etc yeah uh, that would be excellent too yeah because i think certainly the literature surrounding like the osteocytes potentially down regulating your appetite i think that's gonna be just very mm. you know i'm not short-lived. even bothered by the appetite like for mm. me it's more so if i can preserve for more muscle mm. that's the main yeah. reasoning behind it for me but i think that would just be short-lived to be mm. honest so i think i'd probably scrape that out as like a rationale for wearing a weighted vest but also I, I guess the main one that people say like i want to have this extra weight on me so that you know daily neat and slightly daily energy expenditure can slightly improve but uh, i don't know because like if you're always walking around in a weighted vest like that is going to take a toll on you one like the psychological toll of like oh god i'm like heaving around this extra 10 kilograms on my back like do i really want to walk into the other room or am I just going to text my partner and tell him what I want to say or something but well, also, that's where daily step target comes in hand but even if you were walking do you think your gait might change yeah but we know your gait changes anyway in the mm. corporate so yeah lots of little points to examine mm. but what I find quite funny is how people who are natural will find every single solution <laughs> under the sun to try and preserve muscle short of just using some peds which obviously i can understand the rationale behind that but Mm -hmm. it is it's quite interesting and and some things maybe even decrement people's health more Mm. than peds themselves yeah i know but at least we know a weighted vest is probably the safer route at least (laughs) uh but i'm i personally I don't know. I don't I don't know for my 2023 mm. prep if I am well, going to invest in a weighted vest. Yeah, I think a good way of expressing this for the listeners would be, would you prescribe a weighted vest for any of your clients in comp prep? Mm, probably not. Yeah, neither would I. So that I think that answers it. I think what we really just need is a study where they compare two groups, one who undergoes a dieting phase and they wear a weighted vest throughout, the other group undergoes a dieting phase and doesn't wear a weighted vest throughout. Obviously a hell of a lot of other variables would have to be controlled for, but what they need to do is they need to test like their BMR or their RMR at the beginning of the dieting phase and then at the end and actually see if there is a significant difference between both groups and perhaps if one group was able to keep their metabolic rate in a slightly better position or have slightly greater daily energy output because they wore an extra few kilograms on their frame. Mm. It would be best if it could actually compare the exact same subject undergoing the exact same condition, but it's obviously very tough. That's why we kind of just got anecdotal people talking about what their experience was like. Yeah, this is where if if my identical twin did bodybuilding, then I mean, it would be a once in a lifetime opportunity to do these sorts of investigations and it would give some really because we're obviously genetically identical mm. and it would literally be doing the same investigation on the same person in a sense like 
bar the lifestyle changes. If you had to choose, would you choose to be in the subject arm that was or wasn't wearing the vest? Uh, I'd probably choose not to wear it <laughs> if it's fairly new research. <laughs> yeah, man, it's just the thing about wearing weighted vests, it, it reminds me of like The Biggest Loser because I remember years ago actually watching The Biggest Loser and at the very end, they flew everyone over from Australia over to New Zealand to climb this big mountain and they started off at the bottom of the mountain at like their normal body weight that what they'd achieve near the end of their journey with The Biggest Loser. But as they climbed the mountain, every single time they reached this certain checkpoint, they had to put a certain amount of weight into their vest to like signify how much weight they had lost at each week throughout The Biggest Loser. And then once they got to the very peak of the mountain, they were as heavy as they were when they very first started. So I always thought that was really cool. Maybe that's where weighted vests originated from was The Biggest Loser. Because imagine getting up to like the top of a mountain in New Zealand, right? Like weighing an extra 50 kilograms compared to what you were a few months prior. Like you just feel so freaking accomplished, right? Yeah, it also makes me think about like how much diet culture has changed. <laughs> in the last 10 years because I remember watching The Biggest Loser as well and like they would strip everyone off and literally be in that theatrical room and weigh everyone and like literally compare everyone with how much they'd lost. Yeah. And the thought of doing that nowadays, I don't think that would fly. <laughs> I love how they step on the scale and it like fluctuates for a good like 25 seconds. It's like boing, 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 boing. And there's like, yeah, all of the theatrical music and everyone's like, oh, <gasps> What's it going to be? And then, yeah, the, it turns out the person's like, oh my God, he gained weight this week. So <laughs> also like they didn't do it as a percent of their body weight either. Mm. So the people or the males who would typically like a bit heavier, they had a bit of an unfair advantage. Yeah. But And what the thing about the biggest loser though, is that they always just emphasize just the exercise, right? Like those dudes were just going at it, just being beat down in like those personal PT sessions by like the commandos and stuff every single day for like hours on end. And the only time they ever actually showed nutrition was when they had to do the challenges where it was like, ooh, can they resist the temptation of the 3000 calorie milkshake <laughs> when they're blindfolded or something stupid. But maybe this is where like i was destined to be a dietitian all along because even when i was a little kid like I've, I've always loved food but i was always curious i was like what are they eating you know like what these people have to eat like they're not just drinking the milkshakes and they're not just exercising and starving like i was always curious what are they actually feeding them behind the scenes because we know that obviously nutrition and being in an energy deficit overall would play a huge role in them at least getting enough protein intake and everything so mm. i want to know what what were they actually eating behind the scenes of the biggest loser yeah hopefully lots of fruit vegetables and protein yeah well you'd hope rather so rather right? than the man shake yeah and a bit of calcium too but yeah i don't know they need to they need to emphasize more on the nutrition front i don't even know if that show still exists yeah i have no idea mm. i know that steve cook was on the biggest loser usa mm. recently but i'm not sure if they've changed the way they do that yeah, yeah. <laughs> that could have been a different career avenue for us couldn't it mm. but you know bodybuilding dietitians that's that's where it's at <laughs> all right well hopefully that answers the question about weighted vests um jack this next question so it says if reversing into a show and you're ready early and you increase calories weeks out is there a need for a peak week protocol? 
I would still say yes, because like the peak week protocol isn't just associated with manipulating your caloric intake. Like mm. for most people, there will be an element in peak week where they will be at around maintenance calories. Mm. I think for few competitors, it really does depend very highly on the competitor, but the manipulation of energy around peak week is just one variable. Like we have to consider the other variables of peak week as well, which might be your training. It might be your food volume as well. So for example, if you just, even if you are reversing, but you train as per usual and accumulate a lot of inflammation and fatigue, and you also keep your food volume very high in peak week to reflect your other weeks, then you're going to have potentially an impaired look Mm. on stage compared to if you just fine tune a few other elements of peak week, like water intake and training food volume, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why in, in most peak weeks, right, like you kind of cut short your intense normal training sessions toward the beginning of the week. Some people even deload during a peak week and then usually reduce cardio, usually reduce step output. And then toward the end of the week, when it's usually coincided with a carb up, you're just kind of doing some pump up sessions in the gym, trying to keep your stress low, sleep really well. Like the, the hard work ultimately should be done by that point. You really are just fine tuning things so that you just feel really good and you just look as best as possible come the actual day that does matter most. Mm. Yeah, and I think if you are in a position where you are reversing, which is a really good position to be in, then theoretically you could keep your caloric intake the same. That mm. doesn't have to change. Potentially, if you are reducing your output a lot, like if you're doing 20,000 steps per day and cardio, which ultimately you should reduce come show day, then potentially you might actually need to decrease your food because if you suddenly reduce all your output to the bare minimum and you eat the same amount of food, then you're going to be in a surplus Mm. maybe. So being mindful of certain variables like that is important. So I think when it comes down to it, the short answer is potentially not. Like you can't just keep things exactly the same if you are just reversing yeah yeah and also reversing doesn't necessarily mean that you aren't in a deficit either like reverse dieting it can mean a lot of different things but Mm. ultimately i would almost describe it as you aren't as hardcore dieting as you may have been accustomed to in the weeks prior so Reverse dieting could still mean that you're still in somewhat of a slight energy deficit, but you've just closed the gap on that energy deficit. So if you're reverse dieting, you've been inching up your calories every single week, but rather than being in a 800 calorie deficit every single day, maybe you're only in like a 200 to 300 calorie deficit every single day. So yeah, I just wanted to put that point out there that it's not necessarily that like you are completely diet breaking or that you are purely just at maintenance calories either. So even in that case, like if you are reverse dieting, but you're still losing weight, but just at a slower rate, like maybe only 100 to 200 grams on average per week when in the weeks prior may have been accustomed to a 400 or a 500 gram drop. Yeah, you could still manipulate things in peak week, especially if you're definitely on the very conditioned and leaner side of things then yeah, you could actually increase your food more so you actually fill out even more come show day. Mm, Yeah, I I agree completely. And I think for all of our competitors this season, we've all done a a slightly different protocol for all of them. Like no one's peak week has been the same as someone else's. Mm. And yeah, 
if if a coach is giving out, like say they have five or six clients doing a season and you've gotten the exact same peak week protocol, that's a concern because if if you're not dieting on the same amount of food, like why should you be peaking on the same amount of food or with the same protocols? It doesn't make sense. Yeah, it really comes down to your coach knowing what your best look is and trying to just manage all of those variables to definitely make sure that you can bring that come show day. And some like coaches learn things too. I know definitely this past season, like I've learned things with my clients about what is the best look and making slight manipulations peak week to peak week to peak week. That just goes to show that the whole team's just improving. Mm, for sure. Yeah. And people's responsiveness changes between, let's say, show one and show two, especially mm. if it's like a four week difference, they are going to respond quite differently depending on their body composition. Yeah. So hopefully that answers your question. You're probably going to change a few things, but don't go changing too much. All right. This next one. So this one says, do you guys think you are better coaches or better athletes? <laughs> Interesting one. Yeah, we've never been asked this before. Yeah, I would be interested to know what the criteria was for mm. like what is a good coach, what is a good athlete. And I'll let you go first, maybe. So I'm just saying off the bat what I think about myself. Yeah, like are you a better coach or a better athlete? It's tough, eh? Because when we're involved in a very subjective sport, but there's obviously still objective markers to determine whether or not you get results and, you know, you are a good coach or you are a good athlete. And would you agree in saying those objective markers are generally placings for either yourself or for your clients? I think that would be the easiest thing to cherry pick, but I don't necessarily think that's the right or the only metric to use mm. because someone could be a very poor coach and just have a genetic freak as a client who wins everything. Mm -hmm. It doesn't like, that doesn't mean they're suddenly a good coach. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess from an outside view from someone else spectating, they would see that as yes, they can get results in either as a coach or as an athlete. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like I'm in a little bit of a unique position because I am genuinely very confident in my ability to coach, but I'm also very confident in my ability to bodybuild. But I guess if we were to look at objective results right now on paper, I guess I'm technically a better coach than I am an athlete, if you wanted to rank that via podium placings. But I know that I am a very good athlete and I know that I am a very good bodybuilder, but I guess so far during my bodybuilding endeavors, I just have faced a bit of defeat, but I don't let that get to me because I definitely have a very high level of self-belief and self-efficacy. And I know that my time will come because I am hella persistent, hella determined. And I know it is really just a matter of time before I get to experience victory and I get to experience winning. So I think that's also what makes me a really good athlete because I can personally take defeat on the chin, but just kind of identify, okay, how can I be better? How can I do better? And I act on that and I always come back better. And I know that 2023, man, that's going to be my year when it all really pays off. And that's what's going to make it so freaking sweet because Boy, I would have faced so much defeat by that point, but I, I, I can't wait to know what it feels like to win. Mm. 
Well, the thing with bodybuilding is if you don't come first, you lose. Mm. So everyone kind of loses about the first place. But They say you win or you learn. <laughs> mm. And it depends why you're doing it as well. Like someone who isn't striving for first place to begin with and they've completed an amazing journey, they've already mm. won. Depends how you look at it, yeah. which I guess why mindset is everything. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But I guess in short, like on paper, I guess right now I have achieved better results as a coach than I have personally achieved as an athlete. But I know that I am still a very, very good bodybuilder. I'm just climbing those ranks right now. What? But what about you? I feel like you might actually be what slightly, uh, not necessarily on the opposite side, but you know what it feels like to experience victory. You've had many, many wins in just your two seasons that you've competed. Yeah, I. it's a really interesting way of looking at it because I, I don't really think about them interchangeably. So it's very difficult for me to... Com- like being a coach and being an athlete is very different. Mm. And like there can be great athletes who are poor coaches and, and vice versa, especially in a sport where so much is determined by genetics. What I will say is that like when it comes to being an athlete, I've never really ever struggled with doing the hard stuff or just being consistent like that's Mm. just part of both our personalities where we enjoy that monotony aspect of training and nutrition yeah we literally live and breathe this i feel like our identity is somewhat that of a bodybuilder and that's what i'd say is if your identity is that of a bodybuilder wouldn't that make you a good athlete yeah i think it would make you a good athlete in the sense that you are very good at doing what needs to be done Mm. But like I often give this, well, actually my parents gave me this analogy back in university and high school when I used to study, like there's a difference between studying hard and studying the right way. Mm. And often people, when they study, they just study for a very long duration and they don't actually, or they aren't actually very productive. Mm. I think the same thing, thing can be said for an athlete. And like, I'll bring this to my current off season right now. Whereas where in previous years, I be super consistent. Like I'd try train very hard. I'd be very good with my nutrition and I would achieve a really, really decent amount. And that sure that led to some first places and overall wins, etc. in my seasons. But I think this year I have just done things a little bit smarter. Mm. So I would actually say I'm a better athlete this year. Like I'm, just as consistent i train just as hard but i think especially getting in someone who can look at things from a bird's eye view mm-hmm. so getting a coach essentially for myself has enabled me to to be a better athlete which is exactly why coaches exist yeah. and through also having a coach um it's actually made me a better coach as well yeah so yeah i think definitely in the last year i've improved a lot as an athlete and i've also improved I think just as much as a coach as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely all about leveling up. But that's what makes you a good athlete as well. Like as the months and the years go on, you do keep going to another level and you do keep getting better and better and better. Mm. Yeah, I've, I've personally never compared my ability or my success between either until we actually got this question because I wouldn't necessarily say that they are comparable. Yeah, I honestly haven't given it much thought and collating those two thought processes together. Yeah, because being a coach and being an athlete, they're certainly two very different things. And also, I think it's important to remember that 
Someone doesn't just become a good athlete the moment that they win a trophy or they win a gold medal. Someone also doesn't just become a good coach the moment that they help a client win a trophy or win a gold medal. You have to think about what were they like leading up to that point and what actually helped them get up onto that first place podium because boy, a coach has probably been a great coach all along for the years leading up to that point, working with their clients to achieve that. The exact same as an athlete as well, right? They didn't just start their prep a week ago. They've probably been lifting weights for many, many years and just mastering their skills over time and coming back. It's only when you see them at that one pinpoint in time and then you're like, oh, look, they, they accomplished it, so now they're good. Dude, they were good all along. Mm, yeah, I certainly think that's a good point to examine the whole experience or the whole continuum rather than just narrowing down on one point in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's not just determined by whether or not you win, <laughs> I would say. It's, uh, it's actually identifying, okay, what are all of the traits and the practices that are going on behind the scenes to help that person get to that point? Yeah, I'm sure there's some discussions about this from a philosophical standpoint. Mm-hmm. Maybe someone's even done uh, some an objective framework of what constitutes a good athlete. I'm sure there is plenty of stuff like that maybe that can be an idea for a future tbd post (laughs) yeah it could be well i know at least i feel as though i'm in that boat particularly as a coach because i've only been on the coaching scene for just over two years but i feel like it's only just this year when i've been able to bring some really top quality clients to the stage who i've been working with for about a year and a half leading up to this point But it's like now I'm being recognized as, oh, yes, Tiara can deliver the results. But it's like I've been the same coach all along. You know what I mean? But Mm. it it just makes sense in this industry that ultimately your clients are your work. Right. And at the end of the day, that does showcase that, yes, you can get the job done. So I think it's multifactorial, like a lot goes into it and it goes both ways for both the coaches and the athletes. But I think it's just important to kind of see past the very end result and then look at, okay, what did it actually take to achieve that? Yeah, I entirely agree. There's so many different points to examine when we look at success. And if we try and narrow down on only one variable, we're ultimately missing the forest for the trees, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, safe to say, I think that you and I were both good coaches, but we're also good bodybuilders too. All right, Jack. Well, that was the end of all of our questions that we were going to answer for today. But I've got one thing left to ask you, and that is, what did you learn this week? Yes, yeah, so I learned not this past week, but definitely since our last Q&A together is that I can get back onto the hack squat, which I'm very excited about. Previously, I wasn't able to use the hack squat for a few months due to my knee. It was just making things worse. But after some productive work with my physio, uh, now I can basically do the hack squat pain-free and actually feel very comfortable on the hack squat and actually feel like that I'm able to brace and have good foot positioning, actually use my left glute, which was the issue last time. I was just primarily driving through. I won't do justice in explaining this well, but I basically wasn't using my glute meat on the left side, which was therefore transferring a lot of the force to my knee. Mm. So yeah, really happy to be back on the hack squat, which... I'm sure people will hear more about 
uh, in Road to 2023. Yeah. Oh, boy, how time flies. Because I feel like that little stint you did with the safety bar, that was just over in a poof. Mm. Yeah, I'm glad it is. <laughs> what about you, though? I learned this week that it's a lot easier to get an elephant drunk than a hamster. <laughs> Why? Is it alcohol metabolism? Or? It is alcohol metabolism. Apparently, hamsters, they just have elevated levels of enzymes within their liver that can rapidly metabolize alcohol, whereas it's not necessarily the case for elephants. So elephants can get very easily drunk on not much alcohol at all, yet hamsters, boy, they can just, whew, you know, they, they're going to be the last ones dancing at that party, the last ones standing up on their, what? I'm sure maybe, maybe they could get so drunk that they'll go up on two feet, but probably still stay on all fours. I think if someone's drunk, they usually have less coordination. <laughs> okay, well then, they're still on all fours, and the elephant is on its back. Mm. <laughs> trunk up. Yeah. No, trunk <laughs> trunk to the side. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully that's... It's a shame to think that they might have done animal studies on an elephant mm-hmm. and hamsters, but... Yeah, no, but it is just interesting. And it caught me thinking, I was like, why is that? Like, why can hamsters metabolize alcohol? And I'm thinking... Perhaps it's to do with their diet because hamsters, they eat a lot of like nuts and seeds and, you know, they eat a lot of fruits and vegetables. And I'd imagine that those would be fermented in the wild. So perhaps they are eating a lot of like fermented fruits and vegetables. And we know that alcohol is produced from the fermentation of like potatoes, right? And your your yeast and anything di- really different types of seeds, you name it, uh, barley, cane sugar, whatever it may be. So perhaps it's just to do with their diet because they're naturally eating like fermented sugars in their diet. So their liver can handle that. But, you know, elephants, they just eat like dry grass and, you know, shrubs from the bush and stuff. So just doesn't naturally have a lot of alcohol within it. Mm interesting hypothesis Mm -hmm. yeah i it could also just be that genetically there's a larger amount of those enzymes correlated with alcohol metabolism Mm. like alcohol dehydrogenase perhaps i feel like it's something evolutionary like you know hamsters they're kind of like they're kind of like scourge animals right and like rats in a sense that like you know pick up the scraps and stuff like perhaps like yeah but evolutionary that's not enough time it's picking up scraps. It's not enough time for a species to... Ev- is evolutionize a word? Yeah. <laughs> to uh, to evolutionize. To evolutionate. <laughs> but like, for example, like, let's imagine like a hamster running around the streets or like back in the days of Rome and Greece yes, when they used to drink a lot of wine, which comes from grapes. You think that's enough time though for to develop an increase in enzymes across a whole species? Uh, a few thousand years. Is Perhaps. it a few thousand years? No, well, it's not. <laughs> how long ago were the Greeks and the Romans around? It was a few thousand years, wasn't it? A few. Well, at, least, only... at least in Egypt and Egyptian Greece. Yeah, well, I don't know, Tiara. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I just have a feeling that hamsters were just running around and they were drinking from the barrels of wine and beer or something like that, just trying to get some calories into them. And somehow that just got passed along through their genes. And now, boy, they are just the wildest animal at the parties. Mm. Yeah, it, could, it definitely could be thousands of years now that you say it. Well, you were the one that studied uh, studied uh, ancient, ancient history. history in high school. Yeah, I know, but that Didn't was. Did you dox a long time that ago. subject, or was that geography? Mm, that was geography. Okay. 
very related to nutrition. Anyway, guys, if you want to get an animal drunk, probably go for the elephant. It's going to be a little bit easier. Um, well, then from an evolutionary standpoint, like why do elephants have big ears, do you think? Mm, uh, I'm not entirely sure. Probably to hear. Well, yeah. <laughs> I would imagine big ears would help with hearing. But to hear what... Because they're not really... They don't really need to hear predators, do they? Because they don't really have... I would have thought they're pretty close to the top mm. of the... Not that they're carnivores, but I think... Mm, maybe need... because there's so few elephants in comparison to other animals. You know what I mean? Like, even if they weren't at a risk of extinction, perhaps it's it's a lot harder for, like, elephants to mate than it would be for like, you know, mice to mate and then repopulate sort of thing. Some mice have big ears though. Some mice do have big ears, but maybe it's so that they can hear another elephant, like, you know, way across the savannah or something, and then they can go find a mate. Maybe. Perhaps, but we'll just have to Google it. Why do elephants we'll have, have big ears? We'll have to get on a zoologist on the podcast. Yeah, it has to do something with their hearing though. I'd only imagine. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thank you very much for tuning in to the TBD podcast. If you did enjoy it, please remember to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag TBD. If you did enjoy it, please remember that we would very much appreciate for you to give us a five-star rating on either iTunes or Spotify or whatever podcast channel you're listening to. And we'll catch you for the next one.